Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Max Neeson. Max covers biotech, pharma, and healthcare for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. So, Max, yesterday the president came out swinging pretty hard against the manufacturers of vaping products. What's the story? Yeah, absolutely. So so this has kind of come into the news and become more controversial lately because there have been a spate of, of illnesses and deaths related to, to vaping. And then uh, more broadly, over the past couple of years, we've seen the, the really rapid uptake of these products by, by teenagers, uh, many of them underage, and a lot of them gravitating towards flavored products. So the president's announcement yesterday focused on those uh, they're going to move towards trying to clear the market of these flavored products that have been so popular, and and also uh, on top of that, uh, keep kind of press for for more 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 to be done on on the safety issue, which is related but separate, I guess, to the the flavored and and the the use by teens. Max, how much is this relegated to illegal vaping products that have been tied to certain uses of oil that when. Uh, evaporated into the lungs can cause all sorts of problems. How much is tied to the vaping products sold by the behemoth tobacco companies? So that that's still very much up in the air. It looks like from the data we have, and this is very limited because, you know, the investigation is still ongoing. They're looking at samples and different products. Uh, but, but there is some evidence to suggest that a lot of the, the kind of acute issues are, are tied to people using these sort of bootleg and, and black market products, specifically uh, THC. Um, so people vaping marijuana have, have uh, been kind of overrepresented among those who've been sick. But uh, at this point, you know, we, we know so little about the, the safety of these products, the long-term impact that we can't really rule anything out. And um, then there's sort of the broader issue of, you know, if, if we have these potentially emergent safety issues, uh, how how much should we be, you know, letting these products get a relatively unregulated foothold on the market, which has sort of been the case in, in the past couple of years. Um, you know, the, the FDA has been sort of slow to to put a regulatory regime in place and then make companies apply for approval and, and do some, some kind of more rigorous testing. So I, I think um, even if the, the product, the problem, you know, the most acute health problem is tied to these illegal products, uh, it still probably behooves the U.S. government to, to take a more active role. And then specifically when it comes to the flavor products, um, there's you know crystal clear evidence that, that these are the ones that teens gravitate towards. So a, a ban makes sense there. So Max, that kind of goes to, you know, one of the areas I thought was very interesting is just how did some of these, how did these products get to the market with, it seems to me just from the outside is little to no FDA analysis, approval, with so little known about the health risks. I'm just surprised that we've, it's almost like shutting the door after the horses kind of fled. Uh, That's exactly what we're seeing here. So the FDA only uh, gained sort of regulatory oversight over this market uh, back in 2016. It it had been sort of even more than it is now a no man's land. And so that that sort of began the the initial process of building a regulatory apparatus, trying to figure out how to regulate these. Initially, uh, companies were supposed to have to apply for approval by by 2018, but then when the Trump administration came to power, they they bumped that deadline back, and and that's the period when we saw Juul uh, kind of you know hit the market and then create this whole sort of 
a big transition. And and I think the the motivation behind that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's this hope that this could be a, a valuable cessation device, uh, a way for adult smokers to switch from combustible cigarettes. But what we're now finding out with the the embrace of this by by form, you know non smokers. Uh, and the potential safety issues. I think that argument uh, is sort of going out the window, which makes that that decision to slow walk the regulatory regime uh, a little bit less defensible. So this is actually, the implications of this are pretty vast because you've seen the big tobacco companies come out and try to present vaping products as a safer alternative. I mean, that really has been the future of some of these tobacco companies. And I'm wondering, do you think that regulators are prepared to force tobacco companies to stop using that, to stop saying this is safer when there's not necessarily the evidence to back it? So I, I think that's beginning uh, to a certain extent. I Recently, I, I think uh, earlier this week, we saw the FDA send a letter to Juul about, about some of its marketing practices. And then when they actually start having to apply for marketing approval, you know, that's not just about safety, but it's about what kind of claims you can make on the market. I think that's an area where, where there's definitely room for the for a regulatory crackdown. And, you know, it may very well be that over time that this does prove to be a safer alternative in some cases. Uh, I, I think the issue is that, you know, unlike Europe, where these are pretty well regulated and, and you can make a better a better case potentially, we just have uh, a lot of people that are using this for, for something other than switching or cessation. And uh, until we have a much stronger marketing and, and regulatory regime, we're, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's not a market that, that can really make that claim broadly. Thank you so much. Uh, Max Neeson, Bloomberg Opinion healthcare columnist, joining us. And of course, you can read all of his columns as well as all the others. They're really fantastic. Read them on the Bloomberg terminal, OPIN Go, or you can read them at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. It's quantitative easing forever. That is the message from the European Central Bank, which cut interest rates further below zero today and revived bond purchases until whenever. Uh, today, in an announcement, interestingly, the bond market reaction has been a full circle. Uh, yields sharply higher on the front end in Germany. You've got the euro strengthening versus the dollar after initially weakening. To try to help us make sense of all of these market moves and going forward, what some of the ECB's actions will mean for the currency, Kit Jukes joins us now, Global Fixed Income Strategy for Societe Generale. So, Kit, why is the market responding perhaps not the way that uh, Mario Draghi would have wanted? Um, well, the turnaround came pretty much after all the news came in. So um, that he announced uh, the, the quantitative easing details in the first 10 minutes of his, of his come talking, uh, what they were going to do, the new lower revised forecasts uh, on growth, the concerns about inflation, all of that's in the front, and we were going down at that point. And then after that, really, there's no new negative news for the currency that came through, just a Q&A session, um, a joke about how the one thing everyone agreed about was that the fiscal policy ought to do more of the work from now on in, um, and the market just melted back the other way. Um, hindsight trading would be a wonderful thing to be allowed to do, but uh, the market was bearish, so the euro has been for a long time. Uh, we were expecting something. We got a package. And we just needed a constant diet of of, of euro negative news, and, and and maybe this sort of summarizes up where Mario Mario Draghi has got to as he uh, as he closes out his time at the ECB. Effectively, 
um, it's really hard work to push the euro down any further. The minute you stop talking, it just doesn't want to go on going down because we're, we're at really historical weak levels. So, Kid, from your perspective, how effective do you think the moves we saw today from the ECB could really be on the European-wide economy? Um, pessimistic by, by instinct. I mean, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the caveat to that is what would happen if you didn't do them in the sense of, you know, what would happen in terms of the currency if he'd come around and done nothing today? We might have shot that up. We might have shot Bundyods up. We might have done things that would have been damaging um, to everybody except President Trump's happiness at breakfast. And so, so you have to you have to start off with that. But I, I don't get a sense really that um, continuing to supply more and more bond buying, keeping bond yields really low, having further negative interest rates really has much of an impact on, I don't know, underlying credit growth, which isn't really the problem, that, you know, Europe's suffering from a world trade slowdown, it's suffering from a global disinflation problem, it's suffering, Germany in particular, suffering from what's happening in China. Um, To my mind, if if you want to offset the weakness in China, why not offset it, um, since it affects Germany most, with easier fiscal policy in Germany to upgrade some of their roads and some of their infrastructure. That would be a fine thing to do in that country. Um, but, but, um, but, but putting the, the financial sector to the point that's closer to the one where they're going to charge people, um, they're going to charge people fees on their checking accounts if we push much further and so on. Um, I, don't know that that, um, I don't know that that really boosts economic activity much. Let's talk about QE forever. What's the ECB going to buy? I mean, they own so much of the uh, of the region's debt at this point. Are they just basically going to own all of it at some point and then start buying up you oh, know, wow. buildings and, and stocks? And I, I think that's sort of the piece. I mean, this isn't QE forever until you change the capital key, until you turn around and you um, increase the pool of what it is they are allowed to buy. So this is this is QE with. Um, you know, a, a slightly slower pace of bond buying than some people had expected, but for as long as for as long as they want to keep on going, uh, or for as long as there's anything for them to buy, or for as long as there's anything for them to buy until they change what they're allowed to buy. But they'll have to they'll have to cross that bridge. And in a sense, it was th- th- that piece is part of what happened today. We're saying, well, what does QE forever mean? I'm I'm only going to buy, you know, I can I'm only going to buy these particular biscuits. Uh, I'll buy them forever. Uh, no, you'll buy them until they run out, and that's how it works. <laughs> Um, so, so I think we we we'll cross that bridge another day. But I thought um, you you could interpret this if you really wanted to as a plea from Mario Draghi. Says we're either going to really you know challenge our mandate by expanding what we buy, or you guys in charge of fiscal policy, you gotta come and help. That's exactly where I wanted to go, Kit. Uh, we uh, Mario Draghi made. Several references to the need for fiscal stimulus from some of the leading European economies. In reality, how much influence does the ECB have over individual countries in their fiscal policy? Um, actually, maybe more with um, Christine Lagarde at the ECB than with Mario Draghi, in a sense that you know um, she's a G7 heavyweight at every big IMF G7 meeting you, you, you've had. She's she's been there. She you know has been involved. Um, Mario Draghi has, has been, you know, the savior of the eurozone. Really, sorting it out. Without him, I don't know where we would have been for the last um, eight years since he since he turned up. Um, so I think they have an influence, but 
Um, counter to that, there's a lot of dogma in Europe. You know, politicians don't like aggressive fiscal easing, particularly in, in Germany. And if you remember back to the the G7 meeting um, in, in southwestern France in Biarritz, there was nothing in the communique about major threats to global growth. You know, there, there was plenty of things that were discussed, but um, I, I didn't I didn't hear President Macron talking about you know, the dangers of another European recession anywhere in there and what they needed to get together to do for a big growth push. So um, I don't think the politicians are quite um, on the same page as the markets and central banks yet, I mean, Europe, at least on growth, to be honest. But yeah. um, that's not to say that that's not to say they'll ignore Christine Lagarde. I think that would be wrong to think they do that. I do want to just bring you uh, some breaking news. CNBC is uh, coming out and reporting the White House is not considering an interim China deal. And you're seeing the rally in stocks pair back a bit with the Nasdaq up now just four tenths of a percent and the S&P up two tenths of a percent. And I wonder when we talk about headwinds to growth, whether we're really just talking about trade disputes. I mean, how much of what central banks do at this point, Kit, will be dictated almost entirely upon whether there is some sort of easing in global trade tensions. Um, yeah, the trouble with global trade tensions is they come and go and come and go and come and go, and time passes, if you like, in the sense that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the impact on corporate profitability, for example, just continues to um, feed through, uh, and, and, and that's not something that's going to go away. I, I, piece landed on my desk a couple of hours ago from my colleague Albert Edwards, who's known as one of the big bears of most things in, in the markets, um, warning about you know, what the, the profit cycle and what it means for recession risks. And, and my sense is, and, and I really sort of feel this sitting in the UK every day, that you know, uncertainty about trade with deals on, off, tariffs up, not off, postponed, but not postponed right. forever, what's going to happen? Time goes on in that process and, thing, and the recession risk grows globally. Kit Jukes, uh, Chief Global FX Strategist for, for Societe Generale, joining us uh, from London. Thank you so much for your thoughts on the ECB uh, news we had this morning. This week, Lisa and I were in Boston for the Boston FinTech Week, where we met a lot of cool entrepreneurs bringing their technology to the financial services industry. Uh, one of the participants at the Boston FinTech Week is Mike Massaro, CEO of Flywire. Um, Mike joins us here from Boston. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. So we think about finan FinTech and just bringing more technology to financial services. Give us a little sense of what your company Flywire is all about. Sure. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Lisa, for having me. Uh, Flywire really helps with uh, global cross-border payment challenges. So we look at vertical markets such as education, healthcare, travel, uh, and they're really complicated when it comes to how money moves around the world. And uh, and what we're doing is we're making that much much simpler. We're making it easy for people to pay, for instance, from China to attend a place like Harvard. Um, and and those transactions have typically gone over the banking rails historically. And what Flywire has done is we've made it uh, a lot easier for those institutions, uh, you know, educational, medical, or travel companies to uh, to collect money all over the world. So what are some of the obstacles that make this much more difficult than people might imagine, which is send over your money and be done with it? Yeah. 
You know, one thing is the transaction size, right? A lot of consumers, we think about buying, you know, five or 10 or even $50, $100 things on e-commerce. When the transaction size goes north of thousands of dollars, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, um, only so many consumers can even put a transaction of that size on a credit card. So they need other ways to pay, traditionally through their bank accounts or alternatives. Um, and so it's really difficult for the billers or the receivers of money as well to manage all the changing dynamics in payments, right? As much as uh, everybody's tried to make payments easier, they're probably the most complicated they've ever been, right? More global uh, commerce, uh, more regulation, uh, more security, vulnerabilities, all of those things uh, make it more challenging. So, uh, you know, both the uh, receivers have had a hard time with it, but it also the payers haven't had a great experience because there aren't great ways to pay outside the traditional international bank wire. So, Mike, one of the big issues I know for all of us, all consumers, as we you know, transact more and more online is security. Give us a sense of kind of how you guys approach security, because you're talking about, as you mentioned, kind of some, some bigger sums of money. Yeah, you know, it's critical to be part of that trusted uh, environment, right? So, you know, Flywire doesn't help you uh, send money anywhere, right? It's very purpose-built. Uh, so we work with the receiver. So it's a, it's a trusted receiver on one side. In many ways, it's almost like a closed loop, right? Because the money ultimately is going to Yale or Mass General Hospital, UCLA Medical Center, um, or... or uh, you know, somebody like um, uh, USC from an educational perspective. So you know the one side of the transaction, you know it's where it's going to go, and you know the purpose of those funds. So that in it in itself is a big game changer when it comes to cross-border payments. And then the, the challenge that we had to do is we had to build a platform that could understand all the regulatory and security requirements within the various countries. Uh, so, you know, for instance, in places like China, India, Korea, uh, you have various kind of checks that have to occur either with the financial system or documentation you have to collect to make sure the funds can securely move. And so that's part of what we've done is, uh, is, is building Flywire and the technology platform we've built in to really check that uh, we're both uh, satisfying the security and compliance requirements within the country, but also taking that effort and that those issues away from our clients, which are the ones receiving the money. Mike, a lot of people point to blockchain and actually that these cross-border payments are a key place for blockchain products, crypto assets to play an important role to basically uh, transfer something in a very easy, seamless way. Is that something that is on your horizon at all that your company is looking into? Yeah, you know, I think we're always, I'm a big believer in the underlying blockchain technology associated to validating transactions or have having a shared kind of global ledger. I think crypto's turned a little more into speculation lately. Um, and I think ultimately, if you look years and years out, um, it, it, there is likely to be a digital cryptocurrency based off some kind of fiat currency. Um, I think how long that takes to develop, I think people have been wrong so far. Um, I think it's going to take time, but I think it will get there. Uh, and I, the way we look at the world is if people want to pay in a certain method, um, we want to make sure Flywire has that method available, whether they're using PayPal, American Express, Visa, or their bank. Uh, or something like Al Alipay, WeChat in China, uh, we want to have all those methods there. So, it, you know, if crypto really takes off from a consumer perspective um, and, they, and they're looking for a certain cryptocurrency, uh, that's something that Flywire would definitely consider. So, Mike, what are some of the areas of growth for your company right now as more and more people transact online? You know, there's, there's really, uh, it really falls into uh, three different buckets. Geographic expansion for us, uh, you know, if you look at the verticals we're in, education, healthcare, and travel, they are truly global industries. 
And so there are students crossing borders uh, to study uh, from places like um, uh, China to Australia or New Zealand, right? There's obviously 1.1 million students coming to the United States every year. Uh, international patients are the same way. They're crossing borders all the time for medical care. Uh, and, and anybody that lives in a majorly developed city, um, you know, all the, all the top hospitals in the United States have international patient programs. So geographic expansion, really getting out there and making sure more people know about the Flywire solution. And then I would say the second um, is around uh, more capabilities, right? Uh, where our clients asked us to help with cross-border, they're actually now looking, because payments get more complicated, they're actually looking for us to just offload all their payments, right? And so we're starting to expand and do that as well. Um, so you've got kind of geographic expansion. You have uh, providing more products and services uh, related to payments for existing clients. And then it's the vertical expansion, right? We just launched this travel sector a year ago. It's growing over 200% year-on-year for us, uh, and we're helping people as they travel around the world just make it easier to pay for a, you know, an adventure trip or a luxury trip. Mike Massero, thank you so much for being with us. Mike Massero is Chief Executive Officer of Flywire, uh, based in Boston. He is in Boston today uh, for the FinTech Week conference, and he's participating in it uh, on a panel called Personalization of Payments in a Purpose-Driven Market. There's more than $30 trillion of assets undermanaged that are subject to non-traditional criteria, such as environmental, social governance, and impact analysis uh, in order to determine where they are going to go, where those dollars are going to go. The question is, how much does this money actually change uh, company behavior or create social value? Here to answer that, Vikram Gandhi, professor at Harvard Business School. He also uh, has been an investment banker uh, for 23 years at Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse. You're also, uh, he's also on the board, a senior advisor to the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. Uh, Professor Gandhi, thank you so much for being with us. So let's start there. How much social value are these ESG funds actually creating? Uh, Lisa, I think if you look at the whole spectrum, as you mentioned, the $30 trillion, still a majority of that is what one would call negative screens. And that is excluding stocks that you don't want to own in your portfolio. A big trend of that is really around fossil fuels, et cetera, recently. But there's been about tobacco, alcohol, religious beliefs in the past. And the question remains as to whether those negative screens actually create value. I think they, uh, in, in terms of changing behavior, I think there's a reflection of values, but not necessarily changing behavior. Um, because for every seller, there's a buyer, and unless there's an overwhelming um, uh, a majority on the sell side, you're not going to increase the cost of capital necessarily of, of the companies. But what we are seeing is a, is a pretty conscious trend towards moving from that aspect to what one would call ESG integration as well as uh, engagement. Uh, and the debate about divestiture versus engagement continues, but there's more and more large institutional investors uh, beyond just making public announcements about it, actually focusing on the engagement side to push companies uh, to change behavior with with, a, with an ESG with, with an ESG framework in mind. So uh, yeah, so Vikram. So in, in my experience, as we were talking just before uh, we went on air, is just this is, seems to, in my experience, come primarily from Europe first, i.e., the focus on ESG, environmental sustainability, governance, impact investing. Um, is it where are we in terms of the United States and some of the big mutual funds and then the big companies and how are they adapting, if at all? 
Well, there's clearly, uh, for, as you said, Europe, nearly half the assets in Europe, uh, you know, of the tri 30 trillion that you said, uh, half, the, half the assets in Europe have some sort of ESG overlay. That number is closer to 25% in the US. But the growth has been pretty strong. And I, and I think if you look, if you talk to the large pension plans, even some of the uh, uh, passive investors, um, they clearly are, are focused on the fact that if you are a long-term holder of stocks, um, and the passive, in, the index investors by definition are, they own the market, is that if you don't factor in ESG into your analysis, you're probably not making good investment decisions. So the, 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 the discussion's gone from let's tick the box, okay, we've looked at ESG, we've gone on our Bloomberg terminal and found our ESG metrics and done it, to moving on to risk management, saying this is a core part of risk management. And then I think we're also starting to see trends in, in some of the pension plans of incorporating ESG to generate alpha is that how do we bring in ESG factors for companies that are actually doing it well because they are potentially alpha generators. So I think that trend is there and in fact is accelerating. Professor Gandhi, how much alpha are we talking about? Can you give us an example? Well, uh, for example, one of the leaders, and we have a case on this in our course, and you know, we've written about 22 new cases here for our course, me and a colleague of mine, uh, which we teach in the MBA class at Harvard. Uh, one, one of the co cases there is on a company called Generation Investment Management, which was set up by David Blood and Vice President Gore, and, who, and they incorporate ESG into their investment process right from the start. And they have, over 15 years now, they've been in existence and gone from a few hundred million to now they've managed about 25 billion. Uh, they have uh, generate, consistently generated alpha uh, on, on, on their portfolio. And we are starting to see um, various other plans, as I said, allocate some percentage of their assets to this, uh, to this uh, uh, asset the investing style, if you will. Has the hedge fund industry writ large, how have they in terms of adopting this? I mean, they're looking for any edge they can to generate alpha. And if, I guess you made the incredible pitch to them that this is in their best interest, I would think that way they would make a part of their investment process. Yeah, so I, I think they're there too. Um, if, you, if you view them as long-term investors, they are bringing it as risk management. But another interesting case we did uh, was on Jana Partners. As you know, they're a pretty active investor and yep. an activist investor, yep. in fact. And they announced last year that they were gonna set up a billion dollar fund to bring in their activist mindset by, under, by identifying companies that are underperforming necessarily on the ESG front and pushing that and that using their activist methodology with an ESG framework. So I think you're clearly seeing more of that. Uh, you probably are seeing less of it in hedge funds though compared to, I say, long-only managers that have a longer-term perspective because risk management for them uh, becomes a key issue. I do also think that to, to make change happen this mindset of quarterly earnings versus long-term investing has to change. I'm wondering, given your role as a senior advisor to the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, how are you advising they take into account some of these ESG criteria? So as if you talk to the Canada, to CPPIB, you know, when they talk about a quarter, they are talking about not 90 days, they're talking about 25 years. That's <laughs> okay. quarter for them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, they have, uh, they, they'll be having more inflows uh, than outflows for the foreseeable future, and they're going to go from 400 billion Canadian roughly now to seven, 800 billion in just five or seven years. So they have a very long-term horizon, and from a risk management perspective, they are proactively incorporating ESG when they make any investment decision. I mean, I've advised them on uh, making investments in India and Asia, et cetera, and I could see that, that, that this, this mechanism of 
tick the box due diligence to risk management, and now they are also experimenting on incorporating ESG from an alpha generation perspective. Just, I guess, broadly speaking, you've been you know, looking at this for a while, are there certain industries that, for lack of a better word, screen well from an ESG impact and maybe some industries that don't? So an interesting case uh, which we have written was uh, uh, on State Street. So State Street, about a couple of years ago on uh, Women's Day, launched an ETF called She, yep. and it was seeded uh, by a large pension plan, uh, basically to identify investments where uh, the leadership, both on the board as well as leadership, there was a significant amount of gender diversity. Not because it, there was a social aspect to it, but it was also that you know there's been enough studies which show that diversity leads to business, better business decisions, which will lead to hopefully financial performance and stock prices. And when they did, but they, they couldn't veer away from the index too much. And so when they did that analysis, uh, they found that they would be heavily overweight on consumer durables, consumer staples, some of the consumer-oriented companies, yep. and highly underweight on technology, energy, and financial services. Okay. So that kind of would be a yep. interesting dynamic as to which shows that on those ESG metrics that they looked at, the diversity between the industries. Very interesting. Vikram Gandhi, thank you so much for joining us. Professor at Harvard Business School, we appreciate your thoughts on impact investing and ESG. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.